is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. On the menu, as gas prices continue their climb in California, the governor wants to postpone the new gas tax set to start this summer. It's a way to offer people some relief as they deal with record prices. But lawmakers in Sacramento, they are saying no. They argue that money is needed for vital programs. We'll go in-depth into this dispute. We might be moving even closer to herd immunity in the pandemic, thanks to the rapid spread of Omicron. Another problem people with long COVID might have to worry about, heart issues. And President Biden sending his Secretary of State to the United Nations to warn of an imminent Russian invasion of Ukraine. 3G is disappearing. We'll get into what that could mean for your car. Could be bad news. Uh, People have a bill of rights. Pets do not. That could change here in California. Your dog and your cat could get some added legal protection. And imagine living the Disney life 24-7. People will get to do that in the near future in Southern California. Is that supposed to be a good story or a nightmare? Well, it could be very Stepford Wives like, but <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure. Or fun and music and Bambi can come to your window. I don't know. <laughs> Bambi? We've got two ways to go with this. Sing songy uh, <laughs> birds or you better manicure that lawn or it's all over, folks. Okay, we begin, we begin with gas prices and the gas tax and what it means for all of us. Jamie Court, president of Consumer Watchdog. Jamie, thanks for being with us. So uh, we're all, already, all of us are paying through the nose, uh, pick your body part, <laughs> for, for gas. Uh, it's going to go up. The governor wants to uh, not have that happen right away. The legislature seems to be bent on maybe thwarting that. So which way do you think we're going to end up going? Well, I think uh, I'm thinking the governor is going to get his way uh, because, you know, we just ticked up now. We're like 472 per gallon. And that's a dollar more, more than a dollar more than anywhere else in the nation. It isn't all taxes. Uh, California taxes are about uh, 51.1 cents per gallon. Those they are the highest, second only to Pennsylvania. But we're paying, like I said, a, a, a more than a dollar more than the rest of America. So there's a lot of profit for the oil refineries built into this, but it adds up to it being unaffordable for people to drive. And the governor's got to offer some relief in, in, in particularly in an election year. You know, he doesn't face very, he doesn't really have an opponent, but I think he wants to make his case. That he's looking out for the public. Yeah. So the argument goes, um, give people a break right now. Things are expensive enough. We've got all this inflation. Uh, mm-hmm. So why are some of these Democrats, uh, you know, seemingly being tone deaf? But they're going to say, you know what? It funds these programs. The roads are bad enough anyways. We need all the help we can get. Yeah. But, you know, it would be one thing if they actually had taken the time over the last you know, like six, seven, eight years when we've pointed out why we're paying more uh, per gallon to, and it wasn't taxes to, to actually investigate and legislate to stop it. I mean, we know that we, we call it the, the, the golden state gouge. We know when prices go up that oil refiners are making more money, more money off California than anywhere else in America. And they haven't bothered to look into that. They haven't bothered to do an excess profits tax and take that back from the oil companies. They haven't bothered to curb the oil company's ability to make this profit in any way, shape, or form. So now when the governor has, you know, what is a simple solution for a little bit of relief, they don't really have a leg to stand on. Uh, But I I think if they want to get serious about giving people relief and they want to keep the tax dollars, then they've got to find a way to come down on the oil refiners for making so much money. Uh, and 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 there are ways, and we are exploring ways to do that legislatively. But let me ask you something, because I know 
we've had this discussion uh, on the show and maybe even with you over the years. Uh, how often have you said to people uh, something needs to be done to to sort of, uh, you know, thwart the gas companies from gouging the public? And yet year after year after year, nothing really changes. You're 100 percent right. And part of it is that we don't have all of the information. Um, we don't know, for instance, how much money the oil refiners are making off every gallon of gas, every barrel of gas in California. They used to report it about eight, seven, eight years ago. They reported it. And then we put out those numbers and showed they were making a fortune and they stopped reporting those numbers. A good step would be getting the oil refiners. There are about uh, five of them that control like 80 percent of the gas supply in the state to report. Uh, how much it costs them, basically, when they put a barrel of crude through a refinery, and how much they're making selling that barrel of crude after it's been refined. And when we know that, we'll know how much more they're making than they do in other states, how much more they're making than they should. And if we want to take some of that money back to an excess profits tax, we could. But we need to legislate that because the oil companies are not volunteering how much they're making off these, these barrels of gas. And of course, crude oil is a factor. You know, crude's going up the the geopolitical uh, standoff with Russia drove crude oil prices up. But again, that doesn't necessarily translate to California having to pay more for gasoline because the crude oil that California oil refiners are using isn't coming from Russia. Um, it, it is, it's a speculative market. And every opportunity they do to raise gas prices, they raise them, but, but it, it really translates to more profit. We need to know what that profit is before we can claw it back. And I'm, I'm interested in legislation this year, and I'm exploring legislation this year with some legislators to do exactly that. So we know next year how much they're making off us. And if it's too much, we can try to get that money back. Jamie Kortz, president of Consumer Watchdog. We may just be stumbling into herd immunity against COVID. The Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington estimates almost three in four people in the country are now immune to Omicron because they either were infected or vaccinated. With us now is Dr. Theo Voss, Professor of Health Metric Sciences at the Institute. So, Doctor, uh, thanks for being with us. Roughly 73% of Americans may now be immune to Omicron, to the coronavirus. How, how did you get that figure? Yeah, it's a, a number of things that, uh, that uh, come together. Um, first, it is the proportion of people who have been vaccinated and then depending on the type of vaccine and the number of vac vaccinations that people have received we can estimate what proportion have protection against uh, 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 the omicron uh, virus then secondly there are lots and lots of people who've already become infected by omicron and by natural infection have uh, built up uh, immunity. And that proportion is rather large because there's a large proportion of people who become infected with Omicron who don't even notice. Including then the statistics, doctor, when, when you're talking about those of us who have, say, have been vaccinated, but to our knowledge, uh, have not gotten the Omicron variant, are you presupposing that the current vaccines would still grant a degree of immunity to the Omicron variant? Yeah, it depends a little bit on the on the type of vaccine. 
um, uh, but there is a partial immunity uh, against uh, a new variant like uh, Omicron. It's not great, uh, and hence you see the spikes. Uh, but uh, I think the, the important thing is that uh, even among vaccinated people, there will be quite a few people who will have become reinfected without really noticing it uh, because they, uh, uh, they didn't uh, develop any symptoms. So what do we do at this point with this kind of info? Oh, yeah, count of... ourselves incredibly <laughs> lucky yeah. that, uh, that Omicron came around uh, and yes, has been much more uh, infectious uh, than uh, than the previous uh, uh, variants, and particularly Delta, which had uh, pretty severe consequences. But what happens when, and I'm saying when, not if, uh, another variant comes along that might be far more pernicious than Omicron? Yeah, uh, of course, you know, that's a big unknown. But we predict that um, for a next variant to take over from Omicron, it would have to have additional benefits in spreading because that's how you know the selection of viruses uh, happens. And therefore, we expect that uh, a new variant, when it comes around, is likely to be even more transmissible and may... Uh, likely share the characteristic that uh, in order to become that much more transmissible, that it will concentrate more on the upper airways. And so uh, it may well be that, uh, that the next variant uh, will have the relatively modest uh, health effects uh, like Omicron. So does that mean we do this whole dance again? If it has this transmissibility, but it's not as severe, do we have to do the masking? Are we concerned about hospitals if it spreads so fast? Or is it, you know what, if long as we can keep it to flu levels for hospitalizations or deaths, then we've seen this kind of thing before? Yeah, I actually think that, um, you know, in peak season, of transmission of these uh, respiratory viruses, so including uh, influenza, uh, it may still be a, a, a not a bad idea in, in crowded uh, indoor environments to wear a mask. But uh, it's likely that you know it's a much more manageable uh, problem where we also no longer really need to go out gung ho and test everyone with symptoms. Uh, it's probably enough if we have sentinel sites, you know, general practitioners who um, have been selected to send everyone with uh, airway uh, complaints uh, for testing so that we keep uh, track of uh, when uh, a new variant uh, uh, appears. And this is a system that's been in place in many countries for influenza. For those who are vaccinated, the future of future vaccinations would be what, in your view? Not so easy to predict, but uh, it's likely that uh, there would be beneficial effects uh, from um, uh, repeat uh, vaccination, possibly with adjusted vaccinations that uh, that are more in tune with uh, uh, the variant that is uh, is around, and hopefully there will be also progress with vaccine manufacturers to um, develop a vaccine that is more universal. 
Dr. Theo Voss at the University of Washington. Coming up, your dog, your cat will have rights too, just like you, if a new bill in Sacramento passes. And imagine living life like a Disney princess or hero. That dream will become a reality soon, right here in Southern California. Right now, another problem some people face after getting COVID is heart damage. Uh, Dr. Pervy Parwani with us now, director of the COVID-19 Heart Clinic at uh, Loma Linda University Health. Doctor, thanks for being here. So we did something the other week on broken heart syndrome, big stressful events taking a, a physical toll. Is this closer to that or is this actual damage You know that you can see, that you can monitor caused by COVID itself? Because we know that COVID can cause all sorts of problems. Um, that's a great question. So um, I think what we are seeing with COVID is COVID definitely can lead to direct damage to the heart. So if we look at the patients that are admitted to the hospital due to COVID-19, almost 20 to 40% of those patients will have evidence of some sort of injury to the heart. And these range from, um, you know, heart attack to arrhythmias to some sort of heart inflammation, what we know as myocarditis, but also cases of heart failure. So that's kind of the extreme people that are admitted to the hospital with COVID. But we also see COVID long haul cardiac symptoms. And these are the patients that continue to have symptoms uh, beyond three weeks. And, uh, you know, what we know is uh, almost one in three patients that get COVID-19 infection will have COVID long haul symptoms. And these symptoms range from palpitation, chest pain, shortness of breath. Sometimes they get dizzy. Sometimes they can have... uh, Um, infection, um, you know, leading to what we call uh, effect on the nervous system. Um, So those are in general, um, you know, the effect of COVID-19 on heart. So I want to make sure I understand and the listeners understand fully the statistics you're giving. So you're saying that what, that a a third of people who get uh, symptomatic or maybe even uh, asymptomatic COVID infections end up with some form of long-haul symptoms uh, often involving the heart? Is that the figure? That's correct. Yeah, one-third of the patient, even with mild infection or um, in some cases, um, you know, completely asymptomatic infection can develop uh, COVID long haul. Now, when we say cardiac symptoms, these symptoms range from extreme fatigue, chest pain, chest tightness, shortness of breath, palpitations, we are seeing new onset blood pressure, people who never had blood pressure issues suddenly coming with um, blood pressure issues. So yes, all of those are possible. And that's why in the first place, we don't want patients to get COVID infection. I I, I was going to ask, does this include that figure, uh, the one third people who are also fully vaccinated? Um. Actually, so, you know, these uh, statistics came from uh, last year when we did not have that many vaccinated individuals getting. uh, What we have seen in last few months is definitely vaccinated individuals are getting infection. And what we know so far is long haul COVID severity and incidents are less in vaccinated individuals than in unvaccinated people. We know that long COVID sometimes can pass. Other times it's really long COVID. What about some of these symptoms? I mean, can you bring that blood pressure back down? Or if you've got actual palpitations or some kind of heart damage going on, damage is done and that's that's what it is. 
No, that's a great question. So that's what we are trying to understand um, by, um, you know, uh, systematically studying these patients. So what I can tell you from my experience running this clinic um, since uh, last year is that uh, most of these patients do get better. Um, most of them, um, you know, within six months, they will have betterment of these symptoms. They are able to, you know, keep up with that, uh, their activity, the fatigue subsides, the chest pressure pain subsides. But we do have patients in our clinic who had, um, you know, very mild COVID infection and they continue to have symptoms beyond one year, um, you know, which is what we don't understand. Why do some patients, um, you know, carry these symptoms uh, way beyond uh, after the COVID infection is over. Dr. Purvi Parwani, director of the COVID-19 Heart Clinic at Loma Linda University Health. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. President Biden says Russia could invade Ukraine within days. Diverted the Secretary of State, sent him to the U.N., where he warned of evidence showing Russia is moving toward an imminent invasion of Ukraine. Now, this comes after reports of shelling between Ukrainian forces and Russia-backed separatists, as well as the expulsion from Russia of the U.S. number two diplomat there. Aaron David Miller is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and CNN Global Affairs Analyst. Thanks for being back with us. So I I guess a lot of people are are kind of scratching their heads wondering what exactly is is Vladimir Putin up to in the sense that uh, the Russians keep saying we're pulling back. We're not really planning an invasion. They certainly know that we have spy satellites and we have intelligence on the ground and who knows where else. And and we seem to be saying, no, that's not true. So what's the point? Well, just remember, guys, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, the question is, is which constituency is Mr. Putin trying to appeal to with with the prospects of a false flag, uh, accusations of genocide in the Donbass uh, a fictional chemical weapons, all the things that Tony Blinken laid out today at the UN. Uh, it's certainly not the West he's aiming at. It's his own domestic constituency. And I think there, the idea of the West as uh, the aggressor, uh, Ukraine as a, as a kind of permanent possession, uh, quote unquote, unified with the former Soviet Union and now with Russia, you know, with linguistic and historical ties going back centuries. All of that is is mystical and fictional. But it may well play at, at well at home. Um, it, to the question of what Mr. Putin wants, or what he's going to do, you know, the reality is, and, you know, we get these weather reports from the administration every single day, and I'm not being critical. I think Biden has handled this thing pretty well. You get weather reports every day, Putin's going to invade. No, he's withdrawing troops. No, he's going to invade. The fact is, there's only one human on the planet right now who knows exactly what Vladimir Putin is going to do. It would take the Oracle at Delphi reading goat entrails and (laughs) trying to figure out exactly what he wants. I would boil it down to three options. A major a major invasion of of, of Ukraine. uh, A diplomatic off ramp, um, which could be comprised of several things that he could claim that he's actually gained over the course of the last three weeks, or a hybrid option of maintaining pressure on the on the weakest link uh, in the chain. And what is the weakest link? It's not NATO. It's not Joe Biden. It's not the EU. It's Ukraine. 
And what you see now, cyber attacks against main banks, paralyzation of the Ukrainian economy. I mean, they're losing billions. There's no foreign direct investment. Their bonds are are are, are literally de- being devalued. Um, and now he's pressuring eastern Ukraine, where he has local actors that are su- in support of, of Russian policy. He could keep this up for weeks. Yeah, I was going to say, how much longer can we play the they're going without further warning, maybe, or maybe they're not game before either it's just not believed that he's going, or, I mean, how long can I mean, he hold those troops realistically at the border? Well, well, with $600 billion in assets and an economy that is clearly not sanction-proof, but is clearly capable, I suspect, for a reasonable period of time of accommodating uh, almost anything that Joe Biden is prepared to throw at the Russians. Um, I think he could probably maintain this posture for quite a while. Where this ends, however, is is the real question. And I don't think it's only about Ukra- um, Ukrainian membership in NATO. I mean, you know, even Zelensky the other day referred to Ukrainian membership in NATO as a dream. Putin's real problem is that Ukraine is is moving, not drifting. It's moving west. And this is an area that he believes is a Russian sphere of influence. You know, the area between Berlin and Moscow, it has been a legitimate Soviet and now Russian security concern for a very long time. He thinks that he needs to control the destiny of many of the actors in that space. So uh, this is not this crisis is not going to end. And it's sad to say we're going to be dealing with Mr. Putin uh, for, for quite some time, yeah, but, and it will not be a pleasant or happy experience. Yeah, but but at what point does uh, Mr. Biden start looking like the you know the sort of the sky is falling guy? Because every day he's saying it's imminent, it's imminent. They can do it today, they could do it tomorrow, and if days, <laughs> weeks go by, you know, at some point people are going to go, yeah, we heard that one before. No, it's it's Chicken Little. Although I'm not sure I have the the. the, the the kid's story down right. The sky is falling. I think yeah. that's probably right. At some point, look, some point, if this crisis ends up to be sort of frozen, no major military move, certainly no major invasion. What if what if Putin decides to to create a limited military move in an area where he has local support and he recognizes these two statelets uh, in the Donbass, uh, Luhansk and Donetsk? And he basically makes them permanently part of Russia. You know, he, he, he doesn't massively invade the country. That could create some tension within NATO. You know, where you stand is where you sit. And the Germans do not sit where we do. They have a different relationship with Putin. They're dependent on, on uh, Russian gas and, and energy. So that could be one way. He's, uh, he's looking for pressure points and cracks to see who will blink first? Uh, I just, uh, under the circumstances, um, as I mentioned, I think there, it, it's interesting because President Xi has aspirations on Taiwan. Putin has aspirations on on um, Ukraine. It, this may not be settled in one fell swoop, some grand military move designed to take over the country. In both cases, I think Xi and Putin have in mind a, lit, a much broader process to test the West, find out where the vulnerabilities are, it, it could take years. Yeah, we're playing a long game. Aaron David Miller, Senior Fellow, Carnegie Endowments for, for International Peace and uh, CNN Global Affairs Analyst. The Bill of Rights, 
one of the most famous documents in history, next to, of course, our Constitution and Declaration of Independence. It guarantees certain basic freedoms. But it only applies to us, to humans. What about the dog? What about the cats? They could have their own Bill of Rights, thanks to legislation in Sacramento. The author of this is Miguel Santiago. He's here with us now, Democratic Assemblymember from uh, here in L.A. Assemblyman, thanks for being with us. So what's in this thing? So uh, it, it sets out to have a Bill of Rights uh, for dogs and cats uh, that creates an environment for them so they're not exploited, uh, there's not cruelty, uh, they can live a life of comfort, uh, exercise, food, clean water, uh, basic things. Uh, but more importantly, it helps to educate folks uh, what, uh, what the needs are of dogs and cats uh, when we rescue them or uh, getting from our loved ones. But are there laws already in the books that protect animals from, you know, neglect and cruelty? Uh, you're absolutely right. There are laws. But what we found out, too, is in some cases, the obvious uh, isn't known to people. Cruelty can also be to a dog uh, not exercising or not socializing them. So you have laws. But what our bill does, it not only does it state uh, the obvious in a Bill of Rights, but it also requires posting at animal shelters, adoption agencies, uh, and this is very important because if you're going to, uh, let's say, purchase a dog or rescue a dog, uh, you need to know how to, how to have this dog live a loving, long, healthy life. And so while it may be obvious to you and me, there's still a long education ahead of us. Well, a lot of these places do the screenings, though, don't they? You know, you got to have a yard. Uh, how long are you gone for the job? Or do you work at home? Are there kids? Are there cats? Are there other dogs? Um, so doesn't that get to a lot of this process? I mean, they're not going to let you take the, the, the guy home in a lot of cases if it's not going to be a good home and they're going to come on back for him. Well, that may be the case with some, but with some, uh, they may not. And so we're making sure uh, that it's posted and the people uh, understand through this educative process uh, what rights uh, a dog and a cat have. Uh, so in a perfect world, uh, we would we know that there would be no cruelty to animals, uh, but we live in the world the way it is, and we're trying to do our part by establishing a Bill of Rights uh, for dogs and cats. And uh, would there be penalties? Uh, at this point in time, no. Uh, we don't have a penalty. There is a penalty, however, uh, for those um, agencies that I described that are not posting uh, this sign. But individual punitive penalty, penalties, as you've described, are already against the law and are already uh, in our penal code. Okay. So for really, really bad stuff. But if someone doesn't take the dog for a run, they're not going to get a fine. No, we're not doing that. But I think it's important <laughs> to educate folks that, that they understand, look, I've got two dogs which I love. My Yorkie certainly isn't going to want to go for a run. Uh, <laughs> but my German Shepherd, uh, he, he can't get enough. Why not just why not only uh, dogs and cats? Or why just dogs and cats? Suppose somebody has a, a, a turtle, a parrot, a, a, I don't know, a hamster. Why not them? Well, it's a good question, and this was a starting point uh, to a conversation because when we began this, uh, we took a look at um, the types of uh, animals that were heavily adopted during the pandemic. A uh, good portion of them dogs, a good portion of them cats, who have lived their last two years with us. Uh, we expect and hopefully not that that some will be returned as people go back to work as people conduct uh, their lives and if that happens to be the case uh, and we're starting to see just a teeny bit of uptick on that uh, we would hope that folks who come back and rescue these dogs or perhaps adopt them uh, would go through this educative process of understanding uh, what it is uh, and that that animals have a right to uh, something so basic uh, like nutritious food uh, water that is clean, uh, 
daily uh, stimulation uh, exercise, uh, comfort to live from free uh, from fear and anxiety, and uh, not be abused. Is abused part of this are basic, but but that's why we started there. Is part of this also, you know, and then thankfully lots of people do see them as members of the family, right? Like because that's basically what they end up being. But also getting away from this old notion, you know, the pet's the property, and then it's a whole different thing. It's not you know a family member. Well, it kind of is. I mean, the dog is is there with you all the time. Yeah, I mean, if you ask my uh, my Yorkie, he certainly thinks he, he's not just a family member, but he's the head of the, household, uh, the king right? of the, <laughs> the king of the house. You know? <laughs> but you know, but but there is something to say about that, right? I mean, there is something to establish uh, rights uh, for for a, a, a living creature, in this case, a, a dog or a cat, because I think it changes the conversation to understand that I'm not going to throw this dog out in the backyard when it's raining because it's a dog, but that it has basic rights. You know, the, the right not to be uh, in cruel situations. And, and sometimes that can be putting a dog out in the middle of the cold or in the middle of the rain. Uh, like anyone else, it should have rights. Miguel Santiago, Democratic Assemblyman from here in L.A. Assemblymember, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. You still have a 3G device, probably not the old phone because that's a, really old i use but, a t- uh, telegraph yes tap tap tap, <laughs> yeah, tap, tap, tap works tap. great sending out the sos <laughs> um but there are others i mean cars are going to have a lot of problems yeah. pretty soon There's some other older smart devices going to have some problems because uh, 3g they're going to turn it off i just had to uh, i was telling you before the break i had to just update, update my my car yeah. it took a took a half hour Real, real pain. Roger, what a fun day. <laughs> yeah, it was terrible. Roger Entner is a telecom analyst and founder of Recon Analytics. Roger, thanks for being with us. So we're going to uh, presume for the purpose of this discussion that, that most people no longer have 3G phones. Uh, and we're really talking about what? Uh, older model and maybe not so much older model cars and other, quote, smart devices that have chips and used to work on 3G? Yep. So when we look at smartphones, the only people who still are left with smartphones are the people. No, there are no 3G smartphones. These are feature phones. And these people are not using their phones because the carriers have tried desperately to get in touch with them. What we have is then also... Uh, IoT devices, Internet of Things devices. So your car uh, has been one. Uh, so if you have a GM car with OnStar, uh, a lot of the older cars have 3G, and Verizon has worked with uh, with GM to extend already uh, the life of that network for for more than a year. There are other devices like electricity meters, like, uh, for example, I have a solar panels on my roof and my meter is also 3G. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, the the state of Massachusetts said, like, if you want to continue to get your, your credits, uh, you need a 4G1 sign here, we'll send you the thing and install it. Now, they're all coming late because we all knew for like 
a long time that this was going to happen. Yeah. So that brings me to my next question. I mean, good on them for letting you know. And Charles, maybe your car knew or you work here. So, you know, because no, my car told me. Right. So but not everyone's car is telling them or not everybody knows. So what are people to do? Just kind of get on the Internet and try and figure out if your device is going to be affected if you've got smart stuff around. Well, that, that's one. The, the other thing is, if it probably is uh, less than five years old, you have a 4G device, not a 3G device. Now, if you have something from like 2007 to 2015 uh, that you got potentially, right, uh, you, you might fall fall into that category. Yeah, but wait a minute. But my, my car is 2020. So why did I have to update it? That for 2020, they shouldn't have put a, a 3G thing in your in your team in, in your car, uh, because everybody knew in 2020, at least in the industry and and from your car that uh, they're about to shut off 3G. Yeah, which is one uh, of the faults for the automakers when we when we talk about this, because yeah. they went right up to the limit because what it was cheaper to do it this way and then yes. get everybody changed on the back end. It's a couple of bucks cheaper to put a 3G three G component in than a 4, 4G component. So, but, Roger, are there people who are going to be stuck? I mean, uh, I did the updated. It was a pain, but it took about a half hour. Now, I presume I'm good to go. But are there people who think they've got devices that uh, are going to be updated and maybe they're finding out it's not easy or maybe it's not free or maybe they just can't? There's that potential that that whatever thing you have suddenly stops working because um, because it has the three G component in it, but it's relatively few devices because um, the real you know wave of devices that that uh, have it are. Uh, have been, you know, launched in the last couple of years. Now, if you have, for example, a, one of the very first Kindles, right, that came with a 3G component uh, if, you, if you chose the cellular connection. And there you might be, for, you, you probably are forced to get a new one or just rely on, on the Wi-Fi component uh, to update and get a new book. All right, Roger Entner there, telecom analyst, founder of Recon Analytics. Okay, when you go to Disneyland, are you sad to leave? Everybody does. No one wants to leave Disneyland. I can't wait to get out. Stay for the fireworks. I can't wait to get out. Most people stay for the fireworks. No, I go. I I see it, and it's like, okay, enough. I've been here Uh, before. (laughs) Yeah, you know, maybe uh, you watch a Disney movie and imagine yourself as uh, a Disney princess or a Disney hero. It might seem disappointing to re-enter reality, but you might not have to in the future. Yeah, there's this uh, planned community in Rancho Mirage where they're working on what they call story living neighborhoods. Dusty Sage is the editor of MiceChat.com, independent Disney news website and blog. He's with us from Disneyland right now. How appropriate. (laughs) Yes, of course. Uh, Dusty, thanks for being here. So, look, when people hear Disney community, they think um, there's going to be a Matterhorn at the center and they'll bring back the gondolas. So is it that (laughs) or is it uh, very like, uh, you know, fun yet safe architecture and happy work Workers and nice lawns and no trash, and that's going to be the, the world that they build. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think it's absolutely going to be a very Palm Springs feeling community, mid-century 
modern sort of a development with a giant lake in the middle. But like all Disney things, there will be plenty of things residents will be able to pay for, uh, like uh, for special services at their community associations or uh, for the lake club um, access. So Disney's going to make money off of you even after you buy your property. So will all the public servants be dressed as like Disney characters? Is, is it like Mickey Mouse going to give you a, a traffic ticket or something? That would be the best. Yeah, I, I'm sure that I'm sure people are expecting that kind of thing, and it's not going to be any of those um, sorts of things. So it won't really feel like Disneyland when you go, and that may disappoint some people. No monorail to take you to Disneyland, um, so it's really just a community that Disney is planning, uh, using their Imagineers to kind of help create spaces. And it all goes back to Walt Disney's earliest ideas for a planned community out at Walt Disney World that was going to be called Epcot. Of course, today, Epcot is a theme park, but the original idea for Epcot was was going to be a city uh, that people could live and work in and that had all the modern conveniences. And while this community won't really be Walt Disney's version of Epcot, it is sort of that idea with kind of the lake in the middle so that it provides beautiful views and, you know, well-planned communities with very strict community rules. And that is something that Disney does very well. So are, lots of strict rules. Are they actually going to run the place or are they just putting it plans to paper and someone's going to build it and then they'll bring in entertainment now and then or, or stuff like that? Well, they really plan to run this thing. So Disney cast members are going to run the neighborhood associations and uh, they will also do the planning for uh, life enrichment sort of activities. You will pay extra to belong to the clubs that will provide all sorts of, you know, kind of niceties to make your life feel better, wellness sort of activities, so forth. And they will also run uh, a some sort of a lake club. It's, it's all sort of nebulous right now what's coming, and I'm sure we'll hear much more in the future. But from what I understand, Disney is going to be very hands-on with this community. So and two others. So, so is this going to be, though, uh, affordable housing or only for the people who can afford tickets to Disneyland? It's funny. Somebody was just the other day asking me, you know, <laughs> it's in the middle of a desert, and um, but it's a very expensive area. And how are they going to find all the water? And I said, well, they don't need to worry about water because the lagoon will be filled by the tears of all the people <laughs> that won't be able to afford to live there. <laughs> Yeah, that's very good. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, when if you live there, when you walk outside, will little birds be flying around you? And yes. they're going to get little animatronic Tweety birds yeah. to come and, and come to your window. Wow. Well, you know they're going to set up. So it's going to be like uh, just like whatever vacation club thing they have. You know, it's there's going to be a, some sales pitch. Yeah, but tent somewhere that they're that's how they're going to rope you in because that's what they do for timeshares and stuff, right? Oh yeah, Disneyland. Every you can't walk five feet without running into a Disney Vacation Club booth, and they'll do that, you know, for this story living community as well. So I'm sure that they'll get uh, the Disney sales engine behind this, and you won't be able to watch a movie or buy a DVD. Do people still buy DVDs? If you buy a DVD, there'll be an only for things that aren't streaming but, anymore. But, yeah. but Dusty, why is it that I, I still can't figure out if this is something out of like a Disney movie or the Twilight Zone? Well, it, when I wrote about it, I had to preface the article with, this is not an April Fool's joke. <laughs> because 
you know, five years ago, no one would believe that Disney would be building an entire neighborhood far, far away from Disneyland uh, that you could spend a lot of money to, to live in properties that Disney is building. Uh, but it's true. But but I want to very quickly because you had mentioned Epcot, uh, and that was Walt Disney's, if I recall correctly, when he was still alive. It was his notion of a planned community, and it never worked out that way. Why did they think this one will? Well, the only reason Epcot didn't work out the way they had planned is that Walt Disney died before they could build it. Oh. So he is sort of the P.T. Barnum of the Disney company, and. Walt was such an enthusiastic and wonderful representative of everything that Disney did that people would have given any amount of money to be part of Walt's dream. But when he passed away, the dream died with him, and the company did what they knew best, which was building theme parks. But they really have gotten to a point where they do know how to develop properties. And out in Florida, they developed a community um, just next to Walt Disney World that they sold many years ago. And then recently, they have developed a second community called Golden Oak. It's right next to the Magic Kingdom with multi-million dollar homes. And they make a lot of money selling that those properties. So I'm sure they just wanted to do something similar in California, but this is a much, much larger uh, development. Dusty Sage there, micechat.com. If I'm going to pay all that money, there better be a churro cart. <laughs> Would you want to live in, in a... In a- 24-hour, seven-day-a-week Disney environment? If the churro cart's there, the end of the driveway. (laughs) All right, that's in-depth for the day. We'll be back tomorrow.